Now today we're going to be talking about what I call the revolutionary impulse uh, of the civil rights movement uh, to go along with the, uh, uh, the integration uh, uh, impulse, which I talked about last time. On June 6, 1966, James Meredith, who was the black man who had integrated the University of Mississippi uh, in 1962, set out on a march from Memphis, Tennessee, south into Mississippi on a solitary crusade to register voters in that state. Now remember, the Voting Rights Act had just been passed less than a year earlier. Crossing the state line, he hadn't been in Mississippi more than five minutes when a white, unemployed hardware clerk stepped out from behind some bushes and shot Meredith. He was taken back to a Memphis hospital, although he would recover. His march, at least for the moment, had ended. But the march itself, however, had not ended. Immediately, Martin Luther King of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, Stokely Carmichael of SNCC, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and Floyd McKissick of CORE, uh, Congress on Racial Equality. We talked about all those organizations last time. The three major nonviolent direct action organizations, they flew to Memphis and themselves began marching south through Mississippi to complete the march that Meredith had started to complete his crusade for voting rights. Now, on the surface, this seemed to be just a continuation of the three organizations' nonviolent crusade for legal and political rights that we talked about last time. But this march would be different, much different. The three leaders of CORE, SNCC, and SCLC soon began arguing among themselves as to the strategy of this march. Martin Luther King, not surprisingly, wanted it to be nonviolent, despite the usual provocations by the Mississippi white citizenry and law enforcement officials, the beatings, the arrests, the general harassment. King wanted to welcome whites to join the march. And, in fact, some of the same white students who had gone to Mississippi during the Freedom Summer voter registration drive of 1964 were already heading down to Mississippi again. And, in fact, King wanted to adopt as the slogan of this march the familiar Freedom Now. But McKissick, of CORE, and especially Stokely Carmichael of SNCC, a young, vocal, rising national leader, had very different ideas. They wanted whites, no matter how well-intentioned, out of the march, and told the whites who arrived to participate in the march just this, go home. They also told King that while they themselves would not initiate violence with the Mississippi authorities and citizenry, if they were attacked, they intended to defend themselves. Their days of passive resistance, they informed King, were over. And they also told the dismayed King that they had another idea for a slogan for this march. Not freedom now, but black power. King desperately tried to keep the philosophical differences that threatened to splinter both this march and the civil rights movement as a whole beneath the surface to project a public unity as the three leaders marched through Mississippi that summer of 1966. But it was only a matter of time, given the incendiary mood among both Mississippi whites and Stokely Carmichael himself, that a moment of reckoning would come. And indeed, on a day that 
king himself was conveniently absent back in Memphis to tape a session of Meet the Press, that that moment came. Addressing a SNCC-dominated crowd in Greenwood, Mississippi, Carmichael, who had just been released from jail, said, This is the 27th time I have been arrested, and I ain't going to jail no more. We've been saying freedom for six years, and we ain't got nothing. What we're going to say now is black power. The crowd roared back, black power. One of Carmichael's aides jumped on the stage and yelled to the crowd, What do you want? Black power. Again, what do you want? The response over and over, black power. Black power. Black power. The equilibrium of the civil rights movement shifted that day in Mississippi. King's philosophy did not uh, disappear, of course, and he remained the most well-known and most honored civil rights leader in America. But this, increasingly, was only among whites, and, as we shall see later, a shrinking number of them. Among an increasingly angry, disillusioned, and restive black population, Carmichael's call for black power was finding an increasingly receptive audience by 1966. And in many respects, it is not hard to see why. Now, Carmichael exaggerated when he claimed that the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement had yielded nothing, but blacks were still economically, socially, and even culturally marginalized in the United States. And all the lunch counter sit-ins and bus boycotts in the world were not going to change that fact of life substantially. <coughs> Blacks in America did need power. Power over their own lives. Power to deal with whites on an equal basis. Even Martin Luther King would agree with this, although not with the slogan of black power itself. Stokely Carmichael's call for black power in 1966 then, as devastating as it was for traumatized whites to accept, and they certainly reacted with fear and with fury to the slogan, was really a call for a level of black independence as a community that would enable it to negotiate with, or to confront as the situation demanded, white society from a position of political, economic, and cultural strength. Now, in many respects, there was nothing new with this. Perhaps the only new element was the actual words black power themselves. As early as the 1890s, Booker T. Washington, who was a southern black leader known for his moderation and accommodationism towards whites, and who in fact is denigrated by most historians today as an Uncle Tom, preached the necessity for black economic independence as a prerequisite for any kind of political freedom. During the 1920s, the more militant Marcus Garvey, known for his espousal of a back-to-Africa philosophy, also advocated black business power, economic power, as well as a separate black cultural development uh, as the best move to, towards black advancement. So, like Carmichael and his black power, Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey were much less interested in traditional politics. The basic goal of the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement that I talked about last time, uh, not as interested in political advancement as in various forms of economic and cultural advancement and economic and cultural empowerment that 
people like Washington and Garvey in the past and Carmichael in the present thought would be much more enduring. But the most important and uh, most significant uh, precursor uh, influence of Carmichael's black power philosophy was not Washington or Garvey, but a man who more than any other influenced him, a man who is thus worth speaking about in some detail, not only because of his influence on Stokely Carmichael, but in his, in his own right, as an exemplar of the anti-integrationist revolutionary phase of the civil rights movement that focused on economic, social, and cultural empowerment. And that person, of course, is Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, or black Muslim leader, who, despite the fact that he was killed in 1965, the very end of what I'm calling the integrationist years, the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement, nonetheless had an enormous impact on everything that occurred afterwards during what I'm calling the revolutionary years, almost as if he were still alive, almost as if he had a life after death. And in many ways, Malcolm X's life began after his death. Now, Malcolm X's life was almost an illustration of black power in and of itself, as well as of the limitations of integrationism in the North and its inability to be truly socially transformative there. Now, Malcolm X was born in Omaha, Nebraska uh, in 1925 as Malcolm Little uh, and grew up in Lansing, Michigan. His parents had been adherents of Marcus Garvey, this being the 1920s, who were harassed by a northern version of the Ku Klux Klan. His father was, we think, murdered, in fact, by white vigilantes. After his father's death, uh, Malcolm's family was broken up. Uh, 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 and uh, 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 his mother uh, uh, suffered a nervous breakdown, had to be institutionalized. Uh, now, Malcolm X was a good student, uh, uh, but was once told uh, by a white teacher that he couldn't think of a career uh, as a lawyer uh, uh, because he was black. Be a carpenter instead, he was told. Disillusioned, Malcolm dropped out of school and moved to Boston, where he became a street hustler and pimp. He was, ironically at this time, ashamed of his appearance and tried to straighten his hair to make it look more white. He was arrested, convicted, and sent to prison for robbery in 1945. In prison, he read black history, world philosophy, and political theory, and became a black Muslim. Now, who were these black Muslims? Well, they were disciples of a man by the name of Elijah Muhammad. Now, black Muslims are related to traditional Islam, but are not considered to be part of traditional Islam. They preached a theory of black supremacy, which turned the idea of white supremacy on its head. In black Muslim theology, God's chosen people were black. Whites, in fact, were created by a disgruntled black scientist who created white people in order to torture blacks. Whites took over the world and took over the United States. But according to this theology, black Muslim theology, one day blacks would return as their rightful place, in their rightful place, as rulers of the world, as a chosen people, perhaps. But more important than this theology was 
the black Muslim message to the black man. First, be a man. Malcolm X always said, get off your knees and stand up like a man. In other words, don't bow or scrape or defer to whites. Now this relates to the idea of black masculinity, black manhood, black male strength, which was of tremendous importance to the black Muslims and to Malcolm X. Two, fend for yourself economically. Build up an independent base of black businesses so you don't have to be beholden to whites for a living, which uh, ironically echoes the much more accommodationist uh, 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 Booker T. Washington. Three, fend for yourself culturally. Malcolm X emphasized the idea that black culture is rich and superior to white culture. Black Muslims desired to reject all white cultural forces uh, and influences uh, for their own black culture. Four, fend for yourself socially. Reject integration. Reject contact with whites. Reject the idea which the Brown decision implied, which Martin Luther King implied, and which every march and sit-in and boycott for integration implied that associating with whites would make blacks better. That it was a desirable privilege to associate with whites. Malcolm X rejected this idea and rejected the idea of blacks attempting to associate with those he considered to be white devils. He embraced the idea of a separate black society. And finally, five, defend yourself as blacks by any means necessary. If a white person hits you on the cheek, Malcolm X would say, mocking the nonviolent posture of Martin Luther King, don't turn the other cheek send him to the cemetery. Imbued with these principles, uh, as well as with the uh, strict black Muslim code of personal conduct, no alcohol, no drugs, uh, no theater, no nightclubs, no philandering, Malcolm X emerged from prison in 1952 and soon became the leading black Muslim spokesman in America. And by the early 1960s, he was the black American most white Americans feared and hated the most. By the early 1960s, Malcolm X presented a plausible alternative to Martin Luther King for the hearts and minds of black Americans. Now, he didn't have as many actual adherents, of course, as Martin Luther King. But even King admitted that there was a part of every black American that was attuned to Malcolm X, even if they didn't say it out loud. This is because, as Martin Luther King well knew, Malcolm X said out loud, what many blacks would only say behind closed doors. In this respect, although the actual membership of the black Muslims uh, was no more than uh, a couple of thousand, Malcolm X still had a huge influence on those blacks like Stokely Carmichael and others uh, who may not have been black Muslims but certainly got their message. Now, Stokely Carmichael saw Malcolm X for the first time in 1962 when he was in college at Howard University in Washington and was transfixed by him. And as Carmichael became more and more disillusioned with nonviolence, with interracialism and integrationism as a strategy and a philosophy, as he moved closer and closer to his black power speech in Mississippi in 1966, Malcolm X served as Carmichael's guide and inspiration, providing the SNCC leader with a vision to rival that of Martin Luther King 
an alternative, oppositional view of the black man's past, present, and future in America. Well, whatever that future would be, Malcolm X would not live to see it. An apostle of violence himself, he died violently, gunned down in February 1965 by other black Muslims as he gave a speech in Upper Manhattan. In fact, on a personal note, uh, the father of one of my friends in elementary school uh, was a New York City policeman, and he was the first cop on the scene uh, and took the dying Malcolm X to the hospital, which was actually right across the street. Uh, 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 one of, that's Columbia Presbyterians across the street. I'm talking to Silvio, my fellow Bronxite. Uh, the, other, uh, uh, the other connection that I have with, uh, with Carmichael is that uh, uh, we went to the same high school, although he, uh, went to, uh, he went to my high school 10 years earlier than I, than I did. He went to science. Uh, uh, so those are the two connections I have personally to uh, this particular period of history. Carmichael, however, unlike Malcolm X, would live on. Uh, and he kept Malcolm X's dream, that other dream, not Martin Luther King's dream, alive through the idea of black power. Now, as one might imagine, white Americans were greatly disturbed by what they considered to be a frightening turn in the civil rights movement. And, of course, the term black power was a threatening one, although I wonder whether if this philosophy of self-empowerment had been shorn of its whites are devils rhetoric and angry exterior posture, uh, the underlying philosophy of black power, uh, which was really very little different uh, from the mutual aid practices of white immigrant groups, would have been so difficult for whites to accept in the mid-60s. In any case, the idea of black power and the espousal of black power allowed some racist whites to indulge their racism, writing off blacks as separatists and chauvinists. But for other whites, some of whom considered themselves racial liberals and integrationists, black power's message was certainly a disturbing one, especially when it was coupled with the social dislocation that was sweeping through American cities in the late 1960s. Violent crime, for example, skyrocketed in American urban areas after 1965. Murder rates shot up, and felonies in general, burglaries, robberies, sexual assaults, reached all-time highs. At the same time, thanks to the war on poverty and also to the largesse and generosity of many big city mayors like John Lindsay in my native New York, spending on social services... Uh, food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, which is health care for the indigent, rent supplements, all of these rose sharply. By 1969, in fact, one out of five New Yorkers was on some form of public assistance. And whites, especially middle-class whites, associated blacks with this increased level of social spending, linking crime and welfare to create an image of a separatist, violent, indolent, and perhaps worst of all, ungrateful black population. Now, this angry emotion came to have a name. It was called white backlash. And beginning in 1966, it fueled a number of national political careers. Richard Nixon, uh, whose political career only a few years earlier it seemed to be over, we'll be talking about him more later, Ronald Reagan, uh, who was elected governor of California in 1966, despite never having held public office before on a platform of law and order, 
and cutting social services to so-called welfare bums, code for blacks. Not to mention George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, whose slogan had been segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, and who had been responsible for the massacre on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that I spoke about last time uh, uh, during Martin Luther King's Selma voting rights campaign in March 1965. Now, in the presidential election of 1968, which we'll be talking about in a future lecture, uh, Richard Nixon and George Wallace, who was running as an independent, Nixon, of course, ran as a Republican, would between them win over 57% of the popular vote. A testament to the power of white backlash, of angry, resentful, revengeful whites seeking to teach blacks a lesson. And this white backlash impulse would remain a powerful one for the next three decades, providing, whether they would admit it or not, a new lease on life, an electoral base for the Republican Party. But perhaps the biggest source of white backlash sentiment came not from crime, from welfare, or even from black power, but from the hundreds of riots that swept through the American urban landscape from 1965. We already talked about the first one, the Watts riot uh, uh, in uh, 1965, that swept through the uh, American urban landscape from 1965 to 1968. And the different reactions of blacks and whites to these riots, and especially to the alleged causes of these riots, testifies to the growing gulf between black and white Americans generally in the United States as the integrationist impulse in the United States began to break up. Now, most of these riots started in basically the same way, through the actions of the police, who in most American cities were overwhelmingly white. In the black neighborhoods where they patrolled, they were largely viewed as foreign oppressors. It might be a traffic stop, as in the case of Watts, or a raid on an after-hours club, in the case of Detroit, but things would quickly get out of hand as the pent-up resentments of ghetto residents against the white police and whites in general poured out in eruptions of violence, looting, arson, and assault. Sometimes entire neighborhoods went up in flames, and often the only the use of federal troops, as in the case of Detroit, in 1967, could restore order. The toll in property damage, not to mention human lives, was large. Detroit, which we read about for today, provided one of the worst examples, but it was different only in degree from literally hundreds of other cities. In Detroit, there were 43 dead, 1,300 destroyed buildings, 5,000 people homeless, 4,000 arrests, and $45 million, which is a lot more in today's money, in property damage. Not to mention the creation of a permanent social, political, and even geographic barrier between blacks and whites in that city, in Detroit, that exists uh, to this day. City versus suburb, uh, separate and hostile, unequal, in a pattern replicated across the United States in city after city. Who's, who's been to Detroit? Okay, I think you'll agree with me that it is just about the most racially separated and racially hostile city, at least that I've ever seen. Uh, and I think that is uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the results of the Detroit riot of 1967. I don't think the city has recovered from that. 
Now, as I said, white and black uh, uh, explanations for the causes of the riots illustrated the perceptual differences, the perceptual gulfs between them. Blacks and white liberals, not to mention the new left, cited poverty, police brutality, joblessness, housing discrimination, racism, and the general hopelessness of ghetto life uh, as the major causes of these riots. The so-called Kerner Report, which was issued in 1968 by the National Commission on Civil Disorders, which was appointed by President Johnson to uh, ascertain the causes of these riots, uh, became emblematic and illustrative of this view. Our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, the Kerner Commission Report wrote. White society is deeply implicated in the ghetto, White institutions create it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. Now, the Kerner Report called for a massive increase in social spending on the ghetto, what it called a vast budget of social change, which the Kerner Commission believed would alleviate the problems that caused the riots and prevent them in the future. But by 1968, when the Kerner Commission Report came out, Congress and white America, not to mention Lyndon Johnson himself, who ignored the Kerner report that he himself had commissioned, wanted to cut the poverty budget, not raise it, with the Vietnam War uh, eating up substantial amounts of federal spending. And the chances for an expanded war on poverty by 1968 were virtually nil. And besides, said white conservative critics of the urban riots, why reward criminals? with federal money. Conservative critics, white conservative critics, were quick to point out that riots like the one in Detroit were not riots with pe of people without jobs. Most of the looters in the Detroit riot, for example, were employed in the city's auto plants and weren't the starving poor their apologists made them out to be. Unemployment as a whole in the late 1960s in America, these white critics almost gleefully pointed out, was between 3 and 4%, in other words, very low. Although what they didn't point out was that it was closer to 20% in black neighborhoods. Rioters, in the view of these white conservative critics of the, of, of the riots, rioters were violent lawbreakers, uh, 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 people who wanted something for nothing, people who didn't want to do any work. And speaking of breaking the law, as far as many white conservative critics were concerned, even nonviolent black leaders like Martin Luther King were at fault, at least in part, for the riots, for encouraging the breaking of immoral laws in the service of a higher law, which is what King did, for creating a culture in which disobedience to legally constituted authority was considered a form of justice. Now, this criticism, of course, anticipated a cultural criticism of the 1960s that I spoke about uh, in my lecture on the culture of the 60s, that it encouraged people to make up their own moral codes, their own moral standards, instead of obeying established moral standards. In an ironic way, white conservatives were accusing people like Martin Luther King who championed the idea of a higher law of being moral relativists, 
and of generally creating a culture of anarchy to replace the culture of obedience that had held America together for so long, making the urban riots possible. And thus, in the supercharged racial atmosphere of the late 1960s, white and black Americans, actually white Americans and black Americans, along with about 20% of the uh, uh, more liberal white population, they were separated, not only in their views on the causes of the riots, but also in their views on crime, on welfare, on cultural nationalism, and black power separated by an immense perceptual gulf that made it seem at times that they were speaking different languages, that they were speaking past each other, as if they were citizens of two separate nations, as if they were strangers. And it would be this gulf between black and white Americans, this feeling of just not being on the same page, so to speak, that would be the legacy of the late 1960s in American history. It would affect national politics, making the elections of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan possible. It would affect economic life, making it harder and harder to mobilize a constituency for large-scale spending on federal social services for the black poor. And it would affect social relations, creating, even among the growing black middle class, a sense of voluntary social separation between the two races. And it would even affect culture. Almost two separate black and white ways of looking at the world. As the widely divergent, for example, black and white views of the O.J. Simpson case in the 1990s showed. The late 1960s may themselves have not caused the racial separation that seems to have uh, uh, characterized American life in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and, you know, characterizes us today. That, had, of course, had been going on for a long time. But it did put the spotlight on this separation and highlight it for us in a way that traumatized Americans and thus made it even worse. Because this separation, this dislocation, came right on the heels of the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement that I talked about last time a phase that made it seem that everything was going to be all right between blacks and whites in America. That racial concerns, even racial identity, would disappear. That the racial walls separating Americans were coming down, not going up. It was this false hope that the integrationist years of 1954 to 1965 provided that made us made the more confrontational years after 1965 so difficult to take, so difficult for all Americans. We were so close. We were so close to overcoming, overcoming the age-old problem of race, or so it seemed. And then suddenly, we were not. And we had to face the realization that perhaps we never were and never would be. This is what the late 1960s in America showed us, a dark and wrenching vision of a divided nation that still haunts us today in a new century. Now, if the late 1960s were hard on Americans, they may have been hardest on Martin Luther King himself. Exhausted, dispirited, criticized by more militant black power advocates like Stokely Carmichael as an Uncle Tom, 
abandoned by many of his white patrons and allies like Lyndon Johnson for King's criticism of the war in Vietnam. Martin Luther King spent 1966, 1967, and 1968, the last three years of his life, searching for a way to bring nonviolent direct action to bear on the seemingly intractable problems of black Americans, on poverty, on class, on social dislocation, on that amorphous target called institutional racism, the kind that isn't represented by a racist sheriff or an unjust law, but which is hidden in the way institutions operate, in who gets educated and how, in who gets jobs and what jobs, in who lives where and why, and who has access to societal resources and how they are distributed. Now, my sense is that Martin Luther King knew by this time, by the late 1960s, first, what was necessary to end these problems to make their solution more equitable, and second, that white America would not accept what he was offering as a solution, that it would reject him out of hand. But King knew he had to try anyway. He had no choice. And in this last lonely phase of his life, with the money disappearing, with the circle of his friends diminishing, with his influence waning, with an air of impending doom about him, depressed, despairing, yet determined, we see King at the end. Tragic, yet somehow also transcendent, almost embodying the entire story of the American civil rights movement. Its hope, its anger, its dreams, its pessimism, its uncertainty in the body of one man pressing on towards Memphis and the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. One last mountaintop, one last vision of an American society he knew he would not live to see. Now, King's vision, the last three years of his life, uh, the one that I sense he knew he would never live to see, even if he did not die when he did, was one of radical redistribution of resources in America. A democratic socialist vision where incomes would be equalized by government economic planning, where full employment would be guaranteed by the government, where health care would be provided for all by the government, and where the government, through a program of uh, racial preferences, what we now know as affirmative action, would make up for past discrimination by redistributing, and there's that word again, redistribution, a word that most Americans or most white Americans do not like to hear, redistribution of jobs and educational benefits to minorities. Now this, of course, was a different Martin Luther King than the one who had spoken in 1963 at the March on Washington about creating a race-blind society. Remember, not the color of our skin, but the content of our character uh, uh, line uh, at the March on Washington, which is so famous. This king of 1966 and 67 and 68 was more pessimistic. Pessimistic about whether racial distinctions in America would disappear anytime soon. Pessimistic about the power of laws alone to free black Americans without massive economic and social changes as well. Changes King believed only the federal government could provide. And so in the last months of his life, King announced a poor people's campaign, a march of the nations impoverished to Washington, scheduled for the spring of 1968, where they would stay 
for as long as it took for the federal government to act on their demands. Full employment, guaranteed national income, and national health care. But by 1968, the moment for this kind of radical and racialized redistribution of resources, if there ever was one, was passed. And I think King knew this. There was none of the optimism, the exuberance, even the giddiness of his past crusades. This one was almost grim. And this grimness, almost by necessity, uh, uh, in the light of King's assassination in, at Memphis uh, in April 1968, just before the Poor People's Campaign was scheduled to get underway, carried over to the Poor People's Campaign marchers themselves when they finally arrived on the Mall in Washington, D.C. in May 1968. There were only 2,500 of them this time, in contrast to the 250,000 that had congregated for the March on Washington in 1963, just five years earlier. They were almost all black at the Poor People's Campaign, in contrast to the interracial character of the March on Washington five years earlier. There was violence directed both at the police and, this time, at each other. The March on Washington five years earlier had been entirely peaceful. And, unlike the atmosphere in 1963, which had been open and welcoming, appealing to America's conscience, America's generosity. At the Poor People's Campaign in the spring of 1968, it was angry and intimidating. And most importantly at all, of all, America, white America at least, was no longer listening. The Poor People's Campaign leaders now, Ralph Abernathy, who had been Martin Luther King's chief aide, and a young minister from Chicago named Jesse Jackson, got nowhere, nowhere with Congress, nowhere with the president, and nowhere with anyone in a position of power. Jackson was reduced to having his people go through cafeteria lines in government agencies without paying an ineffectual piece of guerrilla theater. While white legislators white editorial writers, and average white men and women lambasted the poor people's campaigns in almost explicitly racial terms as something for nothing, and the world owes me a living, the work of welfare chiselers and poverty pimps. And after a little over a month in the mud and the rain of the mall, and those of you who have ever been uh, 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 in Washington, D.C. in the early part of the summer know it can be absolutely miserable, the marchers began to give up, heading home in despair. The police completed the job by tearing down the shanties they had erected there, and the Poor People's Campaign collapsed in June uh, 1968 with its agenda unmet, marking the end, in many respects, of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. In November 1968, Richard Nixon was elected president with the votes of angry white voters, or at least those who were not so angry that they would vote for George Wallace uh, uh, instead. The so-called silent majority that we'll be talking about uh, on Friday uh, had spoken. Now, Nixon, who viewed the black community as one of his major enemies, and of course, uh, this is a man who is known for having plenty of enemies and keeping track of them, Nixon began to dismantle the war on poverty programs that had not already been dismantled, 
and relationships between blacks and whites in America in the 1970s settled into a sort of hostile stasis. During this period of racial benign neglect, as one of Nixon's aides so inelegant and inelegantly described it, problems in America's black communities continue to get worse and worse, until by the 1980s, indicators like illegitimate births, drug use, crime, welfare dependency, unemployment, and school dropout rates were beyond Martin Luther King's wildest dreams, or should I say nightmares, in 1968. And the word underclass which was a word that Martin Luther King had barely begin to, began to have heard of in 1968, was now in constant use. And, as I mentioned earlier, blacks and whites were speaking past each other like strangers. So, does this mean that the civil rights movement, both the integrationist phase and the revolutionary phase, uh, was irrelevant, of no value? Well, obviously, the answer is no. The integrationist phase affected changes in the American legal structure and specifically Southern society that were clearly long overdue. And the revolutionary phase placed issues of economic and cultural equality, as well as those relating to institutional racism as opposed to individual racism, placed these issues on the table, uh, also in a way that was long overdue. Americans, I think, have a tendency to expect final and permanent solutions to their problems. America is, after all, a powerful nation that gets things done, that solves problems. And, of course, the Civil Rights Movement did not finally solve the problem of race in America. In many ways, it didn't come close. And in a culture and a society that demands a happy ending, this is, of course, the nation that gave us Hollywood, as we were reminded last night, there is something unsatisfactory about not getting that happy final ending. But conflict, and ongoing conflict, is almost built in to our culture, American culture, whether we realize it or not. America obviously is a democracy, and we can't rely on a strong man to solve our problems for us. Nor should we have expected the civil rights movement to solve the problems of race relations in America. That problem was too big and of too long a duration to be solved by any finite era in American history. The civil rights years then gave us not what we wanted, but what we needed, and in so doing, accomplished a great deal, not for the answers they gave us, but for the questions they asked us.